to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, the roundtable style spinoff from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 78, dogs that hate motorcycles, or maybe they, maybe it's the motorcyclists they hate, and the golden age of motorcycle travel. Is it in the past? Are we in it now? Or is there more to come? All that and more coming up. But before we get going, I have a list of supporters that I want to thank that really helped out this month with support of $50 or more. Uh, here we go. Pete Ardern. Raymond Drowen and John Sirabassi from Emmaus Moto Tours. Hey, if you're not doing it already, the show does need your support. Adventure Rider Radio and Raw are built on a model of some advertising and then listener support. We, we're hoping that you're going to step up and support the show. Anything $10 or more gets you one of our Adventure Rider Radio stickers. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on the show like I just did right there. Drop by the website AdventureRiderRadio.com and click on support. Now, here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for July 2022. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I'm joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Grant Johnson in British Columbia. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. Good to be back again. It's been a month, and it just feels like a long time. We're having a good time out here. The weather is good and we're not ha- unhappy at all. Nothing like summer in Canada for a motorcyclist. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just lovely. Michelle Lamphere is in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Michelle, you are also obviously having summer and enjoying probably a busy season still. We are. It is amazing how many motorcycles are coming through the Black Hills and, and people are just out and about in force this year. It's fun to see so many travelers. No, oh, that's that's really cool. When you see when you're saying that you see a lot of motorcycles, is this just when you're out and about or are they actually riding by your place? No, they're riding by my literally in front of my house, in front of the motel. And there's tons of people. I have friends here who are bunker biker hosts. I've had a lot of people request my place too. So there's a lot of traffic. Um, just a lot of ADV bikes around the Black Hills and lots of traffic. So it's fun to see. Wow, that's very cool. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia. Brian and Shirley, good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. I made it out of the rabbit trap, so I'm back in home, back at home. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I almost forgot about that, Brian, because, yes, last time we, <laughs> we, we spoke, you were in the, you were headed for, you weren't actually at the rabbit trap motel, were you? No, no, no. I was on my way. I was at a little place called Hay on the Hay Plains out in the back blocks of uh, New South Wales. Right. That was very cool. I like that check-in and listening to your your diner talk while you were in there. Did you end up having friends at the end of that? I was curious about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We had a ball. We had a great time at the Rabbit Trap and uh, met up with some guys from up north. and uh, a, a great collection of bikes, everything from a full dresser Indian to a um, Rocket 3 rocket launcher. Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Rocket great. 3 rocket launcher? Well, you know, the Triumph Rocket 3, yeah, yeah. the okay. latest one. <laughs> Boy, can that thing go in a straight line. Is that right? Is that, is that a real fast bike? Did it seem really fast to you? Um, overtaking the grey nomads towing their caravans and uh, motorhomes, yeah, it uh, just blitz past them. And uh, but round corners, not so flash. Yeah, um, fuel range, not so flash. You know, <laughs> two hundred kilometres. But uh, you know, we had a lot of fun. Let, let's bring in Sam Manicom. Sam is in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hi, everybody. Um, 
it's just really, really, really nice because I tell you what, it's full on summer here. We've got sunshine and it's hot and it's blue skies and temperatures around 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's about 30 C, which, and I just love this sort of temperature. And I'm sitting up here in our under the roof apartment and I'm underneath a huge window, which is wide open and it's just really nice. I could just, nice gentle breeze floating in around me as we're talking. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. And I have told the seagulls they've got to be quiet. <laughs> well, let's get into our topics. Today's topic is uh, sent in from a listener. And by the way, we don't, we don't do every question that is sent into us. We, it has to jive with, you know, what we want to talk about and what we're thinking about. But if you do have a question, yeah, send it in. We, we, you know, we're always interested in, in what you would like to hear as a listener or any ideas you may have or questions you may have. Okay, so on to today's question. This is it's kind of a, a little bit of a side topic as far as adventure motorcycling goes because it's not something that is discussed very often, but it is something that most motorcyclists have dealt with or had to deal with at one point. It has to do with dogs and motorcycles. Now, I'm not talking about dogs riding in the back of motorcycles. I'm talking about problem dogs. So um, we've got a question from Ron Sharkot. This is dogs and the golden age of travel that we're going to talk about today. Ron's question is about dogs. What Ron wrote in was, I've noticed in various world travelers videos that in different areas, the dogs may have different reactions to motorcycles. Some immediately go for the barking chase, while others appear to be indifferent. I'm wondering if this could be a societal effect on canines. Do some societies create these motorcycle chasing mutts or lazy could care less lap dog? And are some places worse or better than others? And thank you, Ron, for the question. But how about you guys? Has anybody had a has anyone had a real experience like um where he's really had to deal with dogs chasing you down? Uh, well, well, can I start with look, in my previous occupation as a police officer uh, chasing criminals around? We had a, a, a unit that uh, we used for surveillance. You know, they're undercover cars and all that sort of stuff, and we used to call them dogs because what they would do is just follow cars around all over the place. When they caught them, they never knew what to do. The detectives had to come in and sort it out. So dogs, our four-legged friends, are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> is that derogatory? It sounded derogatory. Yeah, it oh, yeah, is. It is. <laughs> We'd have many an argument over a beer over it and a laugh and a joke at each other, you know. <laughs> uh, but um, no, no, they're great guys. But seriously, um, a, a dog will, will chase you. Um, I had one on Sunday. I went um, dirt riding with a mate of mine and – we went past the farm and this dog came, big um, thing came running out and um, I did what I normally do is line the dog up with the front wheel, drop it down a gear, rev the bike and it sort of scares the dog away. But, um, yeah, so that, that was my attitude on Sunday. But on our first trip when uh, we were getting ready to go and you're going through um, little um, – Villages in the middle of Pakistan and Iran and, you know, the back blocks of Turkey and those sort of places. There are a lot of dogs and we were advised to get rabies shots, weren't we sure? Oh. Yeah. So we um, we got rabies shots and we did have quite a few dogs rush at us and stuff like that. Yeah, we've had no. No, no real issues. But rabies shots are really good too because monkeys are full of that sort of those sort of diseases too and you – you see people in Bali and places like that with monkeys sitting on their heads, and all you need is a scratch. Um, so yeah, with dogs. Well, that's, so that's so Brian, the, the the shot, what is that like? 
It's in the right. top of your bum and it hurts like buggery, let me tell you. And right it's, it's, bright, it's bright pink, I think, isn't it, Cheryl, from memory? Is that that pink you one? You mean the oh. butt afterwards or the shot? <laughs> um, both, Jim. <laughs> well, that's why you complained about it being uncomfortable. Some vaccinations don't hurt. I think they but one the did. rabies one does. Yeah. I don't know why, but it does hurt. But it's, you know, it is what it is. And did you have more than one shot? I had mine too. Yeah, I reckon we had two, two. or three in the two, yeah. to, to be fully up to up to scratch, but it lasts for a long time. I, mean, I don't think you have to have it for, is it 15 years, Michelle, in between? I, I think my vaccine card said maybe 10 years or something yeah, before be I need a booster, but yes. Yeah. Those were the days, those yellow cards that you used to carry around with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually liked having them. It was a, yeah, a record, too. actually written down record of what you had had because it was really easy to forget. Well, when did I have that and how long exactly? Is that mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Nice to have it written down. Yeah, nowadays I need everything written down like that, Grant. Yeah, <laughs> let's not talk about that. <laughs> But just going back to rabies jabs for a minute, it is well worth doing. Um, and exactly as Brian said, it's not only the dogs, it's the monkeys too. That, um, in, I mean, if anybody has um, seen a rabid dog, then they will know that they're incredibly scary creatures, totally unpredictable. And I'd read up on them before traveling down through Africa because rabies is fairly prevalent um, through the continent. And in Uganda in a back street, um, there was a dog that was sort of staggering from one side to, to the other a little bit and um, it turned around and looked at me and wow, this sort of sleepy face just transformed and literally the frothing at the mouth and everything else, its body went rigid and I just thought, oh, I'm out of, here, out of here and legged it, of course. But yeah, it it may be jump. Um, yeah, very worrying creatures. And I think people who are maybe hesitant to get that vaccine because, well, I'll be careful. Yeah, but if you do get bit by a rabid dog, the uh, I don't remember the details, but I remember that the uh, prescribed course is major and bad and you really, really don't want it. I wish I could remember the details of it. I wasn't prepared for this conversation on rabid dog. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that it, you the two shots up front, nothing compared to what you could have, would have to have afterwards if you do get bit. And how quickly you have to get to them. Just yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I think I got my rabies shots as sort of a preventive measure, partly in case I saw rabbit animals anywhere, but also as silly as this sounds, because I am attend I tend to pet dogs. And so even at the beginning of a dog having rabies, maybe when they're not showing symptoms and their their disease progression hasn't really advanced too much where you can visibly tell that's what's going on, they can still transmit it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tend to feed strays and pet dogs. And there, I remember going through Central and South America and there were dogs everywhere. Oftentimes around campsites, you know, they would be trying to pick up scraps or um, trying, you know, just to get a little attention. I think it was mostly just survival and they were looking for food. And with people around, obviously, there's usually some sort of food source. So I did the shot series as a preventive just to make sure that I was, you know, if I were in the middle of nowhere, if I were a couple of days away from a hospital, that I knew I was buying myself enough time to get to the hospital for treatment. Um, because if you're in some remote place, say a village in Pakistan or, you know, some place where you do happen to get a bite, um, you need to react really quickly and have that ability to, you know, kind of buy yourself some time. So that's what it was for me. 
No, it makes infinite sense, and it's not only a bite, is it? They, if if you get a scratch from a, a rabid mm. dog, you can you can also get it from that. But there are other things that you know dogs can pass on to you. Um, I always treat dogs with extreme caution and respect. I mean, I like dogs; they're they're, they're just great. But when I'm travelling, for the reasons that you've just said, Michelle, you don't know how long it's going to take you to get somewhere where you need help. And it's it's not only a dog's bite or a scratch, but it also can be their lick. And I think, you know, one of my top tips is if you've been petting dogs, then always wash your hands with soap and water after you have and never let them lick your face because we all habitually touch our faces. It's just a habit that most of us do. And then we touch our mouths or whatever, and it can pass something as quickly as that. And people tend to get um, ringworm, um, which isn't a worm, of course. It's a a fungal um, thing, which is circular itching red patches. And you can get giardia. Um, and roundworms, and roundworms are a, a bit more of a worry, but I mean, there are treatments to that, but they're all things that you can commonly pick up if um, you, you um, get close to dogs. But I think just in general, bites can be um, pretty pretty unpleasant, can't they? I have to say, I have been chased in, by dogs in just about every hot country in the world, and that must mean I either look good or at least I, maybe I need to shower more often. <laughs> why the hot countries i don't know it's i, I never get chased by dogs in um cooler countries. just never seems to happen only ever hot countries my experience has been very 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 roughly is depending on the number of cars in the area will determine whether the dog's going to chase you if there are very few cars in the area you know it's a very um poor area then the dogs are much more likely to chase you partly because you're strange and interesting and different and you could be dangerous. So their natural tendency to be territorial and protect comes right out. And I think also you're just fun to chase as well. That's, and they're bored. Um, but that's been my experience. Is the, the fewer cars, the more likely they are to chase you. So maybe that, that comes to do with hot. That's an interesting yeah. observation. The other problem I see is... Um, um, Rugrats, kids. Remember going through uh, <laughs> going through uh, villages where they come out and want to high five you, and there's a lot of bits and pieces hanging off the side of a motorbike, and you try and dodge these kids, and the more you dodge them, the more they try to run towards you. So they can be a real pest. Did you get shots for that, Brian? <laughs> Are these children rapid? <laughs> No. <laughs> okay, now I have to ask, I have to ask, what is your method? I know your method for dogs, aim the front wheel. So what do you do with these little kids? <laughs> I'm hearing oh, silence. Look, you, try, <laughs> you try and lead out as far as you can with your arm outstretched so that you can uh, high five them. And some of the little monkeys, they will clench their fist and punch your fist. as You punch your open hand as you do that. That's when you get the so, front wheel and you line it up. <laughs> you know, obviously I was being facetious when I asked that, but that was a really good answer, Brian. That that makes a lot of sense because you keep them away from the bike. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you look at our bike with the wide panniers on it and, and the tags over the side of the yeah. yeah, it's just, it's fraught with danger and the kids don't, don't realise that they're just so wrapped to see you and want to say good day and, but you're just um, really worried that if you clip them, God, yeah, just doesn't bear thinking. Yeah, if you're going to high five them, you've got to go super slow because 
20 miles an hour or something is, is one heck of a whack for a little kid. <laughs> I, yeah. One heck of a whack for my shoulder too, if it's sort yes, of wrenched backwards. Yeah. You know, just going back to dogs for a minute, I think that um, actually rather than being bitten or scratched or something like that, you're more likely to have a dog run out and, and in front of you than, and, and that can cause you much more grief, don't you think? Rather than chasing, you mean just run out and end up impacting yeah. the bike? Yeah, yeah, un- unpredictably. Um, I've seen that happen so many times. It's happened to me many times. I was riding with a Swedish um, friend, Stefan, and he had his girlfriend on the back, and dogs ran out in front of him several times, almost as if they wanted to commit suicide. Just completely unpredictable. And those of you who've read um, Elspeth Beard's book, I'm sure that you'll know that in Thailand, a dog ran out in front of her and she didn't manage to avoid it. And she was really shaken up and damaged bike and so on. And she ended up having dog for dinner tonight, yeah. uh, that night. It's an interesting uh, story, isn't it? Yeah. It is. <laughs> well, you know, Birgit had a situation with this in Southern Africa. Um, you know, we were riding through just beautiful, rolling, hilly grasslands. Um, a golden landscape of peace. And that was when I when I was thinking about the story, that was the thought that came into my mind about this landscape. And yeah, just beautiful. But this dog was completely camouflaged, exactly the same as the, as the, the tall grasses, you know, the same colour. And we didn't see it until we were right on it. And it just took one look at Birgit and ran out in front of her. And she actually ended up riding over the top. And I do not know how she managed to stay on um, the bike. Um, yeah, full respect for managing to do that. Um, yeah, I rode over my own dog. What? Oh. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> talk about stupid dogs. This was an ex-police dog, I should mention right up front. Yeah, it's probably one of the uh, dogs Brian was talking about. Probably. <laughs> yeah, not not a bright one, that one. Um, and full-size German Shepherd. And I owned the motorcycle shop at the time. And he was the guard dog and my dog and whatever else. And I came back from a road test and he ran out, bit the front wheel, which was still rolling, of course, and flip. Just He just did a somersault in the air and kept on going. So basically, I only ran over his head instead of the rest of them. He survived. He was fine. But he didn't do that again. He learned from it. Well, that's good. I oh, mean, he learned. It's a bonus. Oh, yes. Yeah. And another one that he learned also was he decided to chase after me another time down the lane. And it was a pretty long lane and old Rocky could, could really motor. And he came to the end of the lane and a car drove out right in front of him. So he put on the brakes, all four paws out. Well, I found out afterwards that he came limping back with the pads torn off all four feet. Oh, the poor yeah. dog. Oh, Man, talk about ugly, messy, horrible. Mm. Take him to the vet. He was not a happy dog. But he didn't chase cars anymore, chase motorcycles anymore. He stopped that too. Oh, that cured that. Well, in a way, that's that's good. That hurt. He very easily could have been dead at that point. Oh, yeah. It was so close. Yeah. Our our little pop, uh, well, it's not a pop anymore, he's, he's a year old now. He has been kind of going at my bicycle when I ride it around and, and trying to bite the front tire, which I think is probably going to do more damage to me than him if he gets a hold of it. But I, I've, I've been sort of trying to work out, how do I stop him from doing this? But a couple of times with the bike, he's come up and I've yelled at him because I, I'm not even, I'm not on any flat surfaces, sort of through dirt and up a hill and stuff like that. I'm, I'm a little concerned about him, actually. Um, Jim, how good a mimic are you? I, I don't know. It depends. Um, when when he's barking um, angrily at something, um, listen very carefully. 
And next time you're on your bicycle, just lean over the side of the handlebars at him and bark like he does when he's when he's cross about something. He'll get the message. I'll give that a go, Sam, and I will let you know what happens. I've I've tried that with on my motorcycle, um, and sometimes I'm a little bit naughty because I let the dogs catch up to me until they're running next door to me, you know, barking and snarling. And I just lean down and give them a good barking at, and they just sort of stop dead in their tracks and then disappear. <laughs> I so want to listen wow. to that. Oh, surely it's so funny, um, especially when there are local people around and they just see this foreign motorcyclist barking. <laughs> yeah. They just shake their heads and go, everything they say about those motorcycle people, it's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, mad dogs and Englishmen, I tell you, especially yeah, in the yeah. Um, in, in Kenya, it felt like there was um, a dog jungle drum system because there were a couple of days running where it felt like every town I rode into, the dogs were there waiting for me to arrive so they could chase me down the street. And the outskirts of the town, don't they, Sam? Yeah, yeah exactly. There'll be a pack of them waiting for you. Yep. Just look under the shade, any any shade, and there's a pack <laughs> of them waiting for you there. And you can almost see their ears perk up and the heads come up off the ground and then the shoulders come up and then, oh, it is a motorbike. Come on, boys. And out they leg it. Yeah, they're out, they're out for prey. It's either prey or territorial. That's my thinking. Mm-hmm. One or the other. I or it's just plain right. fun. To uh, that's what I was going to say. It does, run. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like fun, doesn't really- it? They're not really the most dangerous animals that you encounter. We've come around corners in India and standing in the middle of the road will be an elephant mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. a cow, yeah. and they tend not to get out of your way. No, they so, don't get And they, like, can't, they can't be barked at, so. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one time that you can legally say, holy cow. Oh. <laughs> oh. Oh, oh, dear. I'm sorry. Down. <laughs> my, my cousin actually did hit a cow in the middle of the night on a motorbike and it didn't end well. For him or the no, cow? No, no, either of them. Uh, it didn't end well at all. And I've, I've come across, you know, Brahma bulls in the middle of the road, in the bush, I was just um, having a look. I got an Indigenous friend, and she said she's been chased by anything other than a dog. And um, someone has replied, "Emus," and it reminded me of the fact that emus will run along beside you, and they can run up to oh, sixty kilometres an hour, maybe even a bit more. And all of a sudden, they'll dart across the road in front of you. So they mightn't chase you, but boy, gee, they're dangerous. Mm. Dogs too, don't they? They, They'll tend to run along beside you and then cut in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep, I've had a kangaroo do that to me too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Well, we we killed killed one uh, running to the front wheel of the bike up in the hills. Um, Straight in, thank goodness it didn't go into the wheel. He hit the, um, the front fork. And um, with his head, which didn't end well for him. But, uh, yeah. But what about cats? Just be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cats really, I mean, uh, cats don't really run after things like that, do they? I mean, not not a bike. More likely to be in the middle of the of the road and look up as you as you're riding towards them, and then just not move. This is my spot. You can go around me. Yep. Cats are smarter. Than that. Cats are smarter. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's what smart. it seems like. <laughs> the difference in size, dogs being a pack animal, they're thinking, well, I can get together with my buddies and we'll chase this prey down. 
Whereas a cat, nah, they don't think that way. It's a whole I'll different be, game for them. Hang on. I, I've been, um, um, for, well, on my motorbike, uh, I normally, when we're traveling, I put a cover over it. And I've taken the cover off and scared the living daylights out of myself as there'll be a cat sitting there who'll jump out at you as you take the damn cover off. Mm -hmm. What it was really doing was poking holes in your seat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it was going after the heat. They Mm -hmm. love it up there. It's safe, it's warm, it's dark. Boy, that's just perfect for a cat. Michelle, have you had any run-in with dogs? I have. I remember seeing, and and really just, it seems like all of Central America and South America, I just spent every day watching out for dogs. On highways, you would actually see tons of dogs, especially near truck stops, but even just remote villages, dirt roads in the mountains. And I have, uh, when I got home from Ecuador, well, from the South America trip, I was going through some GoPro footage and I have the most hilarious footage from my GoPro of me getting attacked by a dog, wink, wink. Um, I was riding, riding up a dirt road in kind of a jungle area in Ecuador heading for Peru. And I'm going slow. It was a dried, it had been um, rainy and the road was really deeply rutted, but the ruts were dried. So your wheel would get caught in one. You'd kind of be riding along in a trough, so to speak. So you couldn't maneuver very well. And I was following another bike. So we were just kind of puttering along, not too far outside of a village. And we saw a couple of um, kind of tin sheds or shacks on the side of the road where some families were living and a couple of dogs were laying in the shade out front. And I saw this one dog look up at me and you can see all of this in about 20 seconds of GoPro footage. But this dog looks up at me and you can see him actually, the wheels are turning and he's thinking, should I, or should I just lay here? I, I don't know if I can be bothered, but I know it's my job to protect the house. Meh, maybe. So you can see him thinking about it. And I'm puttering along, looking at him thinking, is he going to come at me? Meh, I don't think he is. And we're kind of, you know, just both in our own worlds. And I'm going slow enough that I think he finally just felt obligated, like he had to. Okay, fine. He gets up and he trots, literally just trots over to my bike and he bites my left pant leg as I ride by and then just turned and walked back over to the shade and laid down. (laughs) (laughs) He just just barely nipped me and and me being, of course, worn out by the intense jungle heat. I I had the same mindset as the dog. It was relentless, that tropical heat. So it takes me like 20 feet before I honk my horn at him and I'm already gone. He's already laying down. (laughs) It's it's the most pathetic dog attack ever on footage. It makes me giggle when I see it. So, but yeah, I I definitely had to, you know, you'd come around a corner and see maybe four or five dogs in, as Grant says, just kind of, you know, I suppose it's a survival mechanism. It's the social structure of dogs. They, you know, can travel in packs, especially when they're trying to hunt for food or be territorial. So there were times I would come around a corner and see, you know, a pack of dogs and and have to figure out what I was going to do. And you can actually kind of see what tack they're taking at you and figure out if you're going to have to steer to avoid them, if you can rev up your engine, slow down, something that would change your pace, whether it was speeding up or slowing down, usually kind of threw them off because they were trying to judge your your tack and your speed and, and meet you and intercept you. But you could get around them sometimes. But 
you know, there were, there were lots of, um, friendly dogs out and about too. So it, every country is a little bit different. There's, there's all kinds of hazards. Dogs, I, I have to say, I've never seen a cat, but um, <laughs> goats, deer. I remember in, in Newfoundland being warned about moose on the road and how dangerous moose can be. So there's hazards everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've come across a moose in the middle of the road at night, standing, just looking. This wasn't on my motorcycle. This, this is in a vehicle. And uh, this Elizabeth and I going along, and, and it's dark. These are, these are roads with no streetlights or anything. It's, it's all bush around. And just drive along, and, and your eyes sort of focus on something that's a little bit blacker. I don't quite know what it is. That It sort of gives you the sensation that there's something there. And as you get closer and closer, you know, we're whipping along at 80 kilometers an hour. And um, what's that, 60 mile an hour or something? Or, or yeah. Yeah, 60 mm-hmm. mile an hour. Then all of a sudden you start to realize there's something there. There's something big there. And as you get closer, then the lights start to illuminate it and you realize, oh, wow. And moose are big. They tower over a car and just standing there. And they're huge. They would they would fall onto the car, like onto the roof of the car, and they kill people that way. That's what I remember hearing was that their legs are so tall that literally their their body, their torso is above your headlight. Yeah. So that if you're on a motorcycle, I mean, you may see them crossing, like if you see an oncoming vehicle and a moose crosses between you, you won't see the body, you'll only see legs. <laughs> and they're thin enough that it might look like a tree branch or something. And so it's disorienting and that you just really have to be careful because they're lethal. They're designed for off-road, not on-road. I have no idea why they're on the road. Moose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're actually designed to stand in marshes, right? And that's what they like to do. They like to yeah. stand in a marsh and they, they like to eat the pond lilies. They're right at home there. But boy, when they get on the road, they are one big animal. But but what, one thing I want to ask, and, and uh, you know, because there's a couple of suggestions there, Brian, the aiming at it. And, and I know, Michelle, you were saying that you were sort of, um, I guess, uh, adjusting as you go. Does anyone have like a, a solid reaction, a rule for how to deal with dogs when they come out? My basic is pretty simple. Just go fairly slowly, but not too slow. And as they come closer, just nail it and get out of there quick. That completely messes them up and they end up behind you. If you, if you try and go through quickly, they're going to, they, you know, you have to change speed. Like Michelle was saying, you have to be able to change speed so that you mess, them, mess with their heads. And I think that works the best that I've seen anyway. I agree with you, Grant, because I think if you rush at um, dogs that are, are potentially um, nasties, um, the, the chances are they'll do something um, unpredictable and unpredictable when you're going quickly, well, that can be really dangerous. So approaching them gently and then opening the throttle when you're there, um, that's just, yeah, that works. like it. Mm-hmm. Except, of course, in big cities and so on. But um, in the, several times it's been mentioned, you just don't tend to get it so much in big cities, do you? It is yeah. the more... Um, the quieter and edge of towns and like um, Michelle just described with the, the two hats and, you know, that sort of thing. And the other one, besides the, the incredible temptation, don't kick the dog. No. That's going to really hurt you mm. more than the dog. Yeah. And the chance of hitting it is, is somewhat low, isn't it? We used to get yeah. foot out to try and get something like that and find you don't get the impact you were, you were expecting. Yeah, but if you do get the impact, I think it's going to be much more than you think it is. I mean, I've put my foot down riding off-road at speed, and oh, wow, if you get caught in a rock or something, that can just about take you off the bike. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take much. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyone else? Any any other thoughts on that? Not so much dogs, but I mean, for me, one of the most beautiful things, most fantastic things about overlanding is 
um, seeing the animals um, in the different countries. And, you know, I was just thinking um, before the show about how different animals are according to the continents they're in. And to me, it's just so much better than seeing them in a zoo. In Africa, for example, with the giraffe and the zebra and the hyena and so on, and there's so many more. South America with the llamas and rears and Australia with emus and kangaroos and Asia with snow tigers and pandas and USA bison, manatee, alligators and Europe with the EU lynx and the wolverine and so on. And you could just go with this list forever. And the chance to see these creatures in the wild, in their own home environment, is absolutely fantastic, um, I think. But of course, you do have to be very respectful of these creatures when they're in the wild. And Birgit and I had a, a little episode with some elephants in Botswana. And we were riding through the bush. It was way off the beaten track. And we rounded a corner and magnificent herd of, of nine elephant, the full family. So, you know, right the way from, so the, from the youngsters to the, to the matriarch. They're only about 30 yards away. And the leader of the herd turned toward us and instantly started ear flapping. We were too close and we were being offensive to her and she was protecting. Um, and we had the chance there of, of either legging it, but we were on a really soft sand track, which was twisting through the scrub, um, or just sit and wait and don't move and don't be a threat. And we decided to do that and the elephant slowly wandered on. What a magnificent opportunity. This was us just close by to a herd of elephants um, and all senses alive, sounds, smells, the lot. Um, so quirky info, information on elephants, by the way. Herds are always led by a matriarch. The bull elephants are there in the group, um, but they're never involved in making the decisions. It's always the females. Um, and they're one of the few animal groups um, to naturally walk spaced out and roughly in a line. I think camels are the only ones that are the ones that I can think of that do that. But get this, when they're walking like that, they're known as a parade of elephants. It kind of fits, doesn't it? Because they're sort of all kind of regal and, and on parade like that. A shocking statistic about elephants. In the last 60 years, elephant numbers have decreased by five, uh, from 5 million to just 400,000. That's a decrease of 90%. They're my favourite animals because they're kind, they're caring, they're helpful to each other, they're loving, they're committed, they have amazing memories, and they're almost never violent. Um, yeah, beautiful creatures. Some of you guys must have seen them too. Oh, yeah, we, mm -hmm. we, we came across them too. I think it was in the Okavango Delta. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, just crossing the road, um, munching on the, um, on the side of the road, surely got off to take a photo, and the matriarch, Got a little bit upset. She had a little baby uh, nearby, uh, so I said, "Just sure, just get back on the bike. <laughs> don't, don't muck around." Because <laughs> so, that, you know, you, they, they they issue plenty of warnings. You know, mm -hmm. the the, the uh, ears flapping and the uh, pouring in the ground a bit. You know, it's yep. uh, pretty easy to tell when they're angry. But you're right; they're a beautiful animal, and it's such a travesty that some lunatic thinks that um, it's uh, fun. You know to to kill such a beautiful pachyderm, anyway. This, this is one of the beauties for me of travel, in that when we go out and we're on the road and we're seeing these creatures in their, wild, in their natural wild environment, then we learn to respect them because these creatures are just so beautifully adapted to deal with the local conditions and so on. And, and the thought of, of killing them off, whatever they are, um, just, yeah, it's just nuts. 
Sam, when you were sorry, saying, I'm a bit political there, aren't I? I apologize. Somewhat. Yeah, sorry. About Sam, when you, when, you were, when you were saying when the, when the elephant started, it, it appeared it was going to charge you. Is that the method? Is that what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to sort of just stand your ground and, and look submissive? I th- you've got two choices. We did quite a lot of reading on it um, before we traveled down through Africa. Um, and one of them is just get the hell out of there as quickly as you possibly can. But our concern in this particular situation was because we were on this quite soft sand track, which was literally twisting through the scrub, there was a very good chance that we would fall off with roaring engines and all of the rest of it. And that would probably wind her up even more than if we just sat totally still and quiet and just didn't interfere. Um, And yeah, I mean, that is the other form of advice. Hmm. Just definitely be non-threatening is the important thing. Yep. You know, they also do a, a mock charge, which is a pretty scary thing, too. Mm. The real hard question is, how do you tell the difference between a mock charge and a real charge? <laughs> <laughs> Quite yeah, pretty, I have a sign. imagine. There is, there is an sign. answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> now, if it's a mock charge, they stop. Yeah, wow. Yep. <laughs> if it's a mock charge, you're alive to tell the story later. Yeah, and that's if not. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I know we had the same experience as uh, Sam and Birgit, only fortunately we were in a 4 by 4 in uh, some game park in Namibia, and there was like 20 of them crossing the road right in front of us. And, just, and we were less than 20 feet away when they just suddenly, there they were, we came around the corner. And we just stopped and had the same experience and I was in reverse ready to get the heck out of there but yeah just stop don't be threatening and they looked at us thought about it for a bit and off they went not a problem I think that's the most important thing is don't be aggressive don't make noise be quiet and all the rest of it yeah I mean they're not they're not aggressive animals Um, no they're not they're just they're doing their thing and protecting their family and um, you you get in their space and they'll react. Of course they are. Um, we humans do that, don't we? Sure. Yeah. Well, we have the same issue with bears here in BC. You know, if you see a bear, you either very carefully and slowly and quietly back up and get out of there or be big and large and noisy or don't move. Just be non-aggressive. And I've generally found on a bike that's the best way. We, we actually went on foot in a jungle um, looking for um, wild elephant, didn't we, Cheryl? Remember that? And now uh, the, safety, the safety advice was, um, yeah, well, it was right. a bit like a Monty Python sketch because we were given a pointed stick. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can remember right. that Monty Python sketch about what I could do with a gun instead of this pointy stick. But um, uh, the... One of the, if we saw some animal, we had to climb the tree. Another one was stand still. Another one was run, and it all just got jumbled up. And we just hoped we didn't encounter any of these creatures. <laughs> because sure as eggs, we'd run up the tree for the one that could climb the tree, and we would stop for the one that wanted to jump all over you. And and our pointed stick would have been no good at all. Pointed sticks. Oh, oh, oh! We want to learn how to defend ourselves against pointed sticks, do we? Yeah. But but going but going through the jungle, remember that there was um an army patrol on the back of elephants uh looking for poachers. This is in Nepal, and they were so silent. They were upon us before you even knew it. A beautiful, you know, animal, these trained elephants uh, carrying armed soldiers. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to believe that something that big can be quiet. 
Yeah. They are. They're almost silent. I remember yeah. being in Kenya and it, I wasn't on a motorcycle. Different experience entirely. And and so much respect for you and Birgit, Sam, by the way. I think that would be so intimidating, even though I know they are largely very gentle giants. Um, but, you know, if you come around a corner and surprise one, you wouldn't want one to, you know, try and protect herself and have either of you get hurt, you know, in, in the situation. But they are so incredible to watch. They're so beautiful and so soft and so silent. I mean, it really was just something uh, memorable and something I'd wanted to see for a long time when I went to uh, Kenya and Tanzania on a trip with a friend. So it's it's amazing. A very special experience. And I think with with our um, episode, because we had others where we came around corners and they're relevant, but we were on asphalt roads and we could turn around and we could just quietly leave or gently leave um but in that particular instance there was no way we were going to turn around without upsetting her even more so it was just a case of well okay so this is where we are what's going to suit her the best let's do it but i think my most disliked animals from the road are blue bald monkeys well, of course. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just nasty little critters, these creatures. I tell you what, I came across them first time at Victoria Falls. So the, I was staying on the Zambia side of um, Victoria Falls, not the Zimbabwe side, um, little camping site. And there were these monkeys in the trees and I didn't pay an awful lot of attention to them. Um, but they were scrounging little buggers. My goodness, um, thieves. And the next morning I got up and um, to have some breakfast and I'd, I'd been mostly eating um, mealy meal, which is sort of um, ground up maize meal. And you can make a really nice porridge with this and you find it right the way through sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you just add water and boil it and it thickens up and it makes a really nice porridge or you can add a smaller amount of water and boil it and it thickens up and you can make something that's a little bit like mashed potatoes. So, you know, it's it's a very useful meal. Um, sometimes we would treat ourselves and add a little bit of um, uh, cocoa powder or something like that and turn it into a dessert with a bit of um, bit of sugar. But um, anyway, this particular morning, I treated myself to um, some bread, some fresh bread and bananas. And I turned my back literally for 30 seconds. And guess who was eating me- meal, mealy meal again that morning? <laughs> <laughs> and I swear, these monkeys, they were sitting just out of reach in the branches of the trees, eating my bread and my bananas, laughing at me. Little buggers. <laughs> you know what they're really laughing at? Is that you were enjoying that other crap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember, we were in uh, Africa, Shirley, and uh, we were... Um, we had a barbecue going and... Yeah, the monkeys stole Monkeys are stealing stuff off the hot barbecue plate. But they wow. also wait till the um, the weakest of the pack is on their own. I was oh, making a salad right. and a guy was sitting next to me and they were just watching us. As soon as he left the table, they swooped. Right. We'll be able to get it off her. We might not be able to get it off two of them. <laughs> and <laughs> they stole your salad. Oh, correct. Yeah. Every piece of fruit and, and uh, vegetable uh, that was on the table was gone. Uh, and uh, on our Royal Enfield trip through India, um, we pulled up at this beautiful out, outcrop uh, overlooking a valley and all the rest of it. And one of our, our um, travelling companions had a tank bag. And we walked away and he's taking a photo somewhere. Next thing, there's a monkey on his bike, unzipped the tank bag and pulled, <laughs> uh, pulled out. He had his wet bag for some reason in the tank bag, pulled that out and up the tree. 
<laughs> then, then open the wet bag and sort of toothbrush, bang, nah, throw that out. That Toothpaste, nah, don't like that. So, and then the Andy dropped the whole wet bag. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's quite an experienced traveler. Yeah, oh, yeah. He certainly should have known better. <laughs> I remember camping in the mountains in Peru um, and having pitched a tent, and there was actually, it was near a campground that had some huts and a couple of rooms to rent. So they had a small pile of adobe bricks set aside and and made a stack out of them. It was about three feet high, which was perfect for a work table for me to put my camp stove on. And so I could boil up some pasta for dinner. And um, so dusk is, is descending upon the valley and the mountains are really high. So sunset is coming very quickly. Dark is coming quick as, as well. So I was trying to rush dinner, I turned my back to cut up some vegetables to add into the pasta and out of, you know, a couple of um, garden patches or a small orchard came to alpacas and they were just snoopy. They were livestock of the local farmer and they were used to people very comfortable. And this alpaca came over and literally stuck his nose in the pot of boiling water on the stove. <laughs> Because he wanted to know what I was cooking for dinner. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I think the steam got him. I don't, I mean, he, it, so he stepped back, but then he laid his ears back at me and was mad at me as if I had done it. So, <laughs> and he was very snoopy, very aggressive. I had to take a stick and swat him on the rump to chase him off. So it was, <laughs> you never know what's around the corner. <laughs> you never know what you're going to have to deal with at a, at a campsite. That's- We've been sitting in a campsite uh, on the way to uh, Uluru, East Rock, um, and you, you feel something behind you, and a kangaroo yeah, sitting behind sitting you. They're very, very tame there. But, you know, don't take them for granted because they can attack, and um, if you see them back off and start to sit on their back tail, look out. They've got a very sharp uh, back claw and been known to rip, uh, rip people quite easily with that big claw. Is that right? Wow. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. And they've been known to, um, kangaroos have been known to drown dogs in dams. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'll lure a dog into the dam. They'll, they'll run into a dam if they're being chased by a dog and lure the dog in, and then they'll they'll um, drown it. Wow. Wow. Nothing more dangerous than a smart kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> it could be handy to have one of those if you have a dog chasing you on the bike. Correct. <laughs> 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 Surely, Brian, is is kangaroo meat um, commonly available in Australia now? It is, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. And is it, what are people's attitudes towards it? Because I actually quite like it. Um, it's, it's supposed to be very good for you because it's, it's, it's lean. It's very lean meat. Um, I don't eat it, and I, I know I've said this before, I just have a thing about eating our national emblem. I can't imagine Americans eating a bald eagle, so... Um, uh, they're, they're bloody tough, sure, bald eagle. Oh, sorry. The feathers get stuck between the teeth. <laughs> the one thing we didn't talk about was, um, does it matter what language the dog speaks, how aggressive it's going to be? In other words, what country it's in. Now, Sam, you did say that it was hot countries that you found you were chased the most, but um, do you think it's it's societal? Is any of it societal? I think to a certain extent it is because um, dogs are treated and uh, are used or thought about in different ways in different societies around the world. 
Um, in some countries, dogs are trained as guard dogs and hunting dogs, and that's it. They're not pets, and they're hugely territorial. Um, in other countries, pe- most dogs are brought up as pets, and they're either well-trained, and therefore they're just lovely to be around, or they're not, and they're pain in the backside. Um, but I don't know, am I wrong? I think Grant summed it up that it's it's yeah. in communities where there aren't a lot of cars and bikes. Yeah, that dogs will be more inclined to chase than in a in a big city where there's where they're used to cars and, and bikes going all the time. Dogs are, are basically, as I said before, they're they're pack animals, and you're not part of their pack. Therefore, you are a threat, and they're doing their job of guarding. And that's that's kind of the big thing for me. That's why they always seem to be so vicious when they're chasing you away. Now, if they're, you can tell if a dog is being territorial and chasing you. He's he's clearly angry and he's barking and he's got a snarl on his face, or he's chasing you for fun. You know, there's mm-hmm. a different expression on their face. Um, and I think you see chasing for fun more in cities if you get the odd dog that does chase you. But out in the middle of nowhere and small villages and so forth, they're territorial. I think that's the big thing. And and as Sam said, sorry, as Sam said, um, they're brought up differently. They're they're not beloved pets. They're out there doing their job, which is protecting the property. That's what they're supposed to be doing. I I think Grant has summed it up perfectly. I I feel like in some parts of the world where there isn't population control of dogs, sometimes you have you know. Um, roaming packs of dogs or wild dogs or strays that have gone off into the bush or living, you know, off of um, landfills and waste around villages. But for the most part, I think he's, he's really said it properly in the small villages where you see, you know, less traffic, not in cities, you'll see more tendency towards dogs that are maybe a bit more aggressive and territorial. And in the cities, most of the dogs belong to people. They've, they're well-fed, they're, um, they have a home, and so you don't see that kind of interaction. It, it really, where my experience has, has um, been with dogs and any kind of attack or chasing is usually in rural parts of countries. Yeah, I found that um, I, I haven't had a whole bunch of experience with dogs chasing after me, but I've never come up with anything that I think really works in my mind. It, it To me, it almost depends on where the dog is and where I am, how I'm going to react. Because like, I feel like if the dog's out front, I'm at a disadvantage, of course, because all I can do is go faster. That's that's sort of my thought process. Is, and, or if you can veer off a little bit, but veering off never seems to work. The, the times I've tried to veer off, it almost just gives the dog more time to catch up to me, you know? So I'm not sure as I've really worked out something that, that works every time. I don't think you should veer off significantly anyway. Uh, If you veer off significantly, then the dog can still get in front of you. And if you hit it, when you're veering and swerving, your chances of going down are a lot higher than if you're going straight and prepared. Yeah, that's a good point. I wouldn't, you know, from a distance, I may veer off or I may go more to the center of the road in order to give myself room to veer if I need to but basically approach them at a relatively slow speed and then surprise them by accelerating madly. I think that's the the safest thing to do. It's also, you know, it's it's like bullies. If you show a bully you're afraid, then the bully just gains 
an extra dose of testosterone and the situation can get worse. But Jim, um, I've just sat here and drafted an email to Elizabeth. Dear Elizabeth, um, don't worry about Jim. If he's wandering around in the yard barking like a dog, it's not that he's gone loopy. It's just that he's practicing his defense techniques. (laughs) You know, Sam, I was going to ask you before we finish up here today, if you'd give me the bark that you do so that I could practice that because I can record it and then I could practice your bark, although maybe I'll lose the accent and, uh, and try it on my dog. Yeah, oh, Canadian absolutely. accent at least. Yeah, that's right. Well, otherwise he'll have no idea what I'm saying. No, that is true. That is true. Um, I mean, mine's probably multilingual though. <laughs> well, I, I think we'll 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 let the dog thing go. Okay, so we'll uh, we're, when we come back, we're going to talk about the golden age of travel. But uh, first, this episode is supported by FreshTracks.co.uk. FreshTracks has been around since the 90s. And what they do is they work with companies or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. They work with a, a lot of big companies like Comic Relief, Yahoo, Mars, Pfizer. If you have a company or you work for one and you're in a position to do that sort of thing, you should have a look at FreshTracks.co.uk. Thank you, FreshTracks. So on to part two of our show the golden age of travel. The rest of the question here from Ron, Ron Sharkot. And uh, thank you again for, for this um, question, Ron. With so much of the Roz panel and their contemporaries travel behind them. That this is, and I'm reading Ron's question here. Now, now just wait till I finish this because I, there's just some things in here I know that are going to be debated. So with so much of the Roz panel and their contemporaries travels behind them, have we come to and passed the, quote, golden age of motorcycle travel, unquote, or are we in it? That's the question. So what does it mean, the golden age of travel? Like, I just want to make sure we all agree on this before we, we get into this. Does anyone have a, a, like a definition for that? I don't know about a definition, but the golden age of travel was between the wars, between the First and Second World War, when people had a lot more... Um, income, et cetera, to get around. And then they said the golden age of travel was the 50s and 60s when the jetliners came in and you could fly from one side of the world to the other in a couple of days. So I don't know, when is the golden age of When you're travelling, probably. Yeah, you know, and I thought, I thought the same thing. I thought the golden age of travel has long since passed, but this is the golden age of motorcycle travel. And, and I'm not sure that I, that I really knew that there was a golden age of motorcycle travel. Now, perhaps he's referring to what you would consider the golden age of travel being, you know, travelers that have done so much and maybe, and I think that first line, that's why I was going to say there's something that might be debated is the, um, with the raw panels and their contemporaries travels behind them. So we could of course take exception to that statement. That's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought. (laughs) No, I read it the other way, is is that we have a lot of experience of travel and we've still got more to do. Don't worry about that. But um, we have plenty of experience in travel. Well, I, I think for the for the sake of this conversation, we should look at the golden age of travel being a reference to, and, and by the way, the definition of it, like if you look at Webster Dictionary, a period of great happiness, prosperity, and achievement. And that could be applied to now. We've just went through a period of tremendous growth in the industry um, through COVID. The sales have just skyrocketed. Availability has become nil because there's so many people clamoring for motorcycles and accessories and things like that. So, and, and the, the thought process is, now it's a bit of an assumption, it's a stretch, of course, but the thought process is that 
all those purchases are leading to some sort of travel. It doesn't have to be international around the world stuff, but some sort of travel, some sort of getting out there and exploring by motorcycle. Um, so, so could we look at that as the sort of the, the golden age, I mean, of, of travel, or would you consider it the time when, and I think this is the other reference, like when Sam talks about when he went around the world, for instance, or Shirley and Brian with your early trips or Grant, or your trip around the world, those times were different. It was pre-internet time. Um, it was a different experience. And, and also with pre-internet, I mean, forget about the fact that there's the, the, the connectivity of the internet, but also there was more mystery to places. So in other words, you, you went somewhere, there was, there was more limited information about it. That could be the golden age. I think that motorcycle overlanding is still in its prime and I think that the world is magnificent and the key point of overlanding by motorcycle, besides dealing with challenges, is to see and to learn from it. And what a wonderful tool the motorcycle is to do that. The ties have a saying which I love and it applies to so many circumstances but particularly to this conversation. And the saying is same, same but different. That sums up overlanding and it always has done. Motorcycle overlanding, I think, has always been changing with the advantages and disadvantages according to the times, who a person is and what their individual aims for a journey are. And um, you and Shirley have just touched on this. But for example, um, in the very early days, there was almost nobody out there. Border officials didn't know what to do with you. There were poor maps, if any at all. And there was a real sensation of exploration and discovery. But my goodness, there were so many limitations um, in the 80s and 90s uh, as, a, as another chunk. Um, still poor maps, but loads better for many places. Um, it was pre-electronic navigation and pre the distractions of social media. Word of mouth was the way you found out about routes and hotels and camping spots and adventure came from the unexpected discoveries. And the bikes had little electronics and many of them broke down more often but they were fixable. Um, wars in some parts of the world were a real issue then. The last couple of decades, well, it's all changed again. Um, GPS, Google, emails, translation apps, much better maps, online info, hotel bookings online, visa applications online, camping site apps, websites, and so it goes. And adventure for many changed each time um, those sections of, 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 of time um, altered. Um, and f- now, for example, I know that a lot of people get a real sensation of joy out of the journey from the ability to plan to the minute detail before they even head out. And they get less of a buzz of the, of the thought of, of serendipity and, and chance. Um, but what matters to me is that people travel. Um, I think now we've got all of the advantages of the past decades but there are changes that are required and as always overlanders have got to learn to adapt to the circumstances um time changes constantly and part of overlanding i think is is all down to learning and it's about the planning and what teaches us and what we then need to learn to adapt to and this has never changed it's just got better the information availability now is absolutely massive but so what changes are there now well, it's more expensive to ship. Well, yeah, so perhaps people will start going with a smaller bike. Pricier fuel? Well, yes, in some countries. Um, so you pay more attention to a motorcycle that's fuel efficient. And of course, most developing world countries, the fuel costs are still tiny in comparison to developed Western countries' prices. And this is another thought. You may feel that you're relatively poor at home, but on the road, you're still going to be able to travel like kings and queens 
um, alternative fuels. I mean, this is the time of amazing development here, isn't it? People are going to be trendsetters with what happens over the, the next five, six, ten years. Um, COVID, well, it's so easy now to learn where it's possible to travel and what it's not, you know, where it's not. And overlanders have always had a plan B. In the past, it might be because countries were more likely to be at war. So you had a plan B to get around a country. So now you have a plan B to get around a COVID situation. And I love the fact that now so much can be done online. Um, I mean, for example, you're not traveling for days to get to a place to obtain paperwork, only to find that the one person who could do it wasn't there. And then you're faced with either waiting for weeks or having to travel hundreds of miles in the wrong direction to get to another option. I mean, having said that, a lot of the naturally occurring people contact can be lost and overlanders now have to make more of a point of doing it. Um, and people are such a great way to, to learn and to laugh. But this is just another example of um, how things are changing. Is it negative? No, I don't think it is. And how about this for a massive positive change for, for the next years? Working from the road. Mm. Wow. The opportunity for people to do their jobs and to work from the road, just absolutely phenomenal. Um, um, I've got my nephew, Ruben, um, for example, he, he's um, a fishing nut and he's just finishing his contract with the BBC and he's about to start hitting the road and he wants to investigate fishing techniques around the world and also fish recipes. And he's going to be working on his website, he's going to be writing articles, he's going to be filming and he reckons he can work specifically about three hours a day desk type work and the rest of the time he's going to be out learning and exploring and to me all of this is just hugely exciting it's, it's it's a new world full of new possibilities but people have got to stop thinking to themselves it's not the same as it was no of course not it never has been the same as it was people are going out and they're learning and they're discovering and they're doing new and sorry i've just ranted haven't i, I do apologize <laughs> I, i'm just really passionate about this I, I think you make an excellent point i i tend to agree with you sam i mean i think that we can certainly say we can lament the old days which which is very common everybody does that but um the the new ways are are new adventures for for people but but the question is is isn't the heart of adventure motorcycle travel, let's say motorcycle travel, isn't at the heart of that discovering new places or is it more of a, of a personal quest? Because, because I'm thinking that like the world's quickly becoming photographed to death with every, every so-called undiscovered place becoming mainstream. And then all those places that were never worthy of attention, they're becoming mainstream because people are looking for again, new. And this sort of points me to what I'm saying is that everyone seems to be looking for that undiscovered. Like think of the, the Darien Gap, the road of bones in Russia, of course, until they attacked Ukraine, African countries, Tanzania, uh, Malawi, Zambia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Egypt, uh, all, of the, all of these have become, in my mind, more mainstream. You see more writers exploring those and talking about them. And, and each time or, or a lot of it is being documented in some form and, and shared on the internet, which is amazing because there's so much information there, but it also demystifies everything. So like, imagine if you went back to the Charlie and Ewan trip in 2004, the long way around, and they had all the information we have today and they knew what to expect. What would that trip have been like for them? And also maybe more importantly, how would that have changed the way viewers received that footage? Would it, would it have the same inspirational effect on people as it did back then? Would, would it, if they had that information that we have today? 
Well, you've got two very strong questions there, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think with all of the availability of technology and information and, and so on, it's up to the individuals whether they want to follow that closely or whether they want to go out and freelance it and live by serendipity and chance and so on. People have got the opportunity to make the decision how they want to travel. They don't have to, to have the sensation that they're following where other people have been. But but to to reference that golden age thing, that thought process, could that golden age been be like, you know, is that reference to that time when it was more discovery? You know, and and less I'm going to ignore the, everything that's there and all the road signs and the pathways. I mean, you know, if you know a wilderness area, it's kind of similar. You, you might go to a wilderness area for years and, and nobody goes there hardly. Or some people do, only the hardcore people, and they and they walk trails and everything. And then all of a sudden, they start to organize it and they make trails and they put up signs. I mean, it's still the same wilderness, but it's a completely different experience. Yeah, I think you're going to find that it comes down to your definition of what is a golden age. I, I think that the golden age is you doing a trip now. To you, it's new. I don't care how many times all of this has been documented, how many pictures there are of the same thing. Your experience standing there, looking at the elephant, looking at the mountain, standing on the pyramids, it's different from all the pictures. I don't care how many pictures I've seen of the pyramids, standing there and touching them is a whole different experience. And until you've actually been there, you just can't connect with it. Totally agree with you, Grant. Um, I had people say to me, Thailand, oh, I don't know why you're bothering to go there. It's just not the same as it was 10 years ago. Too many tourists, uh, way better 10 years ago. But I loved it. I paid attention to what was told to me and I went and had a look for myself. And then I thought, well, parts of the coastline, it's just not my cup of tea. You know, too many tower blocks of hotels and all that sort of stuff. I still found a few remote spots that they probably never even discovered for themselves back when they were there 10 years before. And then I just hunted out the more off the beaten track places to explore. And I had a brilliant time. Did I enjoy myself? Absolutely. Would I have been put off by these guys with their comments about 10 years before? I'd have been daft too. Yeah, I think that's what we have to keep in mind. It's always going to be different. It's always going to change. As long as to you it's new, then it's golden age. That's when you did the trip and when you experienced it and it matters to you. 30 years from now, somebody's going to say, what about the golden age of travel back in the 2020s, you know, right after COVID? That's true. That's so true. Of course it's going to be true. It's going to change. And I think the important thing is to just get out there and do it and experience. Um, And it's it's all about, I think Ted Simon said something about the, uh, the essence of travel is to meet the people. And that's so important. It's such a true statement. The people are always going to be eh, sort of the same, but they're also always going to be different to you and meeting them and learning about them and what life is like for them and what their culture is like. That's what it's all about. It's, it's meeting the people, getting the experience, getting understanding. Was it um, somebody said Franklin Covey? That's it. Seek first to understand than to be understood. And the important thing is seek first to understand. And I think if we travel with an open mind and we listen to people and we ask questions, then we can start to understand 
in a small way, and we'll never understand fully, we, in a small way, we can learn about their culture and why it is the way it is and how they think and why they want what they want and what the differences are to us. And that informs everything about the way we think and improves our understanding of everything. I think that's just so, so important. I agree. And I, I just loved this question. I thought it was so interesting. And for me, I think it's hard really to know when the golden age of motorcycle travel either was or is, where it begins, where it ends. And I think sometimes you need the retrospect. You need perspective and time and distance from that time to see if this is the golden age, if it already passed us, kind of where we fit into the overall scheme of what that timeline looks like. You know, when I look back at travels and I've read lots of books of motorcycle travelers that have come before and you read stories about Carl Stearns Clancy out, you know, a hundred and some years ago on a motorcycle and the Van Buren sisters in the USA who rode cross country in 1916. And I, I think of what incredible adventures and, you know, strong willed people they must have been to take on something like that. And they were kind of the pioneers, so to speak. So some at some point past that, when it becomes more popular and when more people are out there doing it is probably when the golden age begins. And I don't know if that was, you know, even as early as, as in the 70s when Ted Simon was out or in the 80s when Elspeth Beard was out, or if it's something that came later. And maybe we are at the threshold of it because as Grant said, you know, travel has really changed significantly post-COVID and will continue to change. So I'm not sure that, you know, I know where that golden age threshold is or isn't. Um, but I, I think that travel is constantly changing as, as Sam and Grant have both have said, you know, traveling a hundred years ago in the days before paved roads, when there wasn't infrastructure, there wasn't fuel, um, there weren't places to stay or lodges or, you know, places to get support for any kind of motor vehicles or travelers. There weren't communication systems in place. That must have been incredibly challenging. And I have so much respect for the type of adventurous spirit that it takes to take you out the door at that time. And now we're at a place um, where things are so much more accessible and there is that infrastructure and there is that opportunity for so many people. And as Sam so rightfully pointed out, you know, now that people, especially post-COVID, are able to work from the road, wow, that's another another layer of evolution in that process. So who's to say we're at where we're at in that um, you know, kind of journey or timeline, so to speak, of motorcycle travel? I really feel like I don't know that we've reached the golden age yet. I think we're getting sort of to this tipping point where there is still so much opportunity. And yes, the roads may be being paved as we speak in countries where you've heard stories for years of these rugged gravel and dirt roads and, and you know, this complete middle of nowhere experience is now sort of disappearing in certain parts of the world. But that's just how the world has always been. It's it's continuing to change all the time. And so as, you know, as we know, you just take the opportunity to go experience it as you can in your time and, and at, you know, in your budget. And that is the experience that's worth having. I, I think you, you made some some great points there. And it, and it gets me thinking, it, it gets me thinking about what I was saying at the start, like sort of about the discovering of new places being sort of 
part of our our reason for going out and traveling, at least for, for a lot of people. I mean, Sam even said when he went to Thailand, he said he still found a few remote places, meaning that those remote places were important. When they're no longer remote, when they're no longer undiscovered, when they're all built up and all well visited, will it still be of interest? And, and having said that, it makes me think of young kids today who have grown up with the internet and with their cell phone and with social media and how for them that when you talk about, you know, if I say something to a kid about, well, you know, you're being tracked by that, they say, well, who cares? Well, what do I care if I'm tracked? You know, they just don't mm-hmm. care because they have grown up with it. And and Michelle, you mentioned perspective in there. It, it does make me wonder if it's all to do with your perspective, where you stand in time, how far back you can look with memory. But you you talk a lot about um, having seen everything on the internet and having seen everything on television. To actually experience it yourself makes it a much better experience. Mm. You know, I'd seen a million photos, maybe a slight exaggeration, of the Taj Mahal, but you walk through that gate and it takes your breath away when you actually see it. Perfect example. Yeah. And the same thing. Exactly, yeah, and um, the Grand Canyon. There's so many things. The 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 monument, the ancient monuments in Rome. You've seen films driving down the Spanish of, of cars driving down the Spanish steps, but you sit at the bottom of them yourself and you think, "Wow, I'm here, and it's so special." And that makes every age the golden age. Here, here. So really, the the golden age of motorcycle travel could be the time when we're traveling by motorcycle. In other words, this will come to an end when, I don't know, things change so much if they ever do, so that motorcycles are no longer a mode of transportation. Either it, either transportation has changed completely or it becomes no longer practical or maybe there's legal aspect. I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm just saying something changes that we can't predict down the road. That would sort of be the end of the golden age of motorcycle travel. It may have started out with Carl Stearns Clancy and uh, Carl Stearns Clancy and, and sort of move on through all the people that you, that you mentioned, Michelle and on upward and Ted Simon and, and, and Charlie and you and, and on up through all the other people and then end with the motorcycle. I don't think it'll end Jim. I mean, people thought yeah. about the golden age of flight ending with a, a plane that would take you from Melbourne to Darwin in one day. And, and now they talk about planes that take you from Melbourne to London in 20 hours. And in 10 years' time, they'll be talking about planes that, you know, take you around the world in half an hour, whatever. It, it's just it will change, but there will still be some form of motorcycle. It might be more a hovercraft or who knows what the new technology will bring, but it'll yeah. still be some form of travel. Yeah, no, that, yeah. yeah, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm saying. I'm saying if the motorcycle disappeared completely, that would be the end of the golden age. But until that happens, yeah, we're, we're still in it. And it's going to matter how you look at it from your perspective. In other words, if you were, if you're 20 years old, you will see it as something today. If you're 50 years old, see it as something different. If you're 80 years old, you're going to see it as something different. Right. If you're alive now, you're right in the middle of the golden age of motorcycle overlanding. Go out and travel. <laughs> yep. It's all golden to you because you are doing it. So that's yep. what makes it a golden age. Well, and I Correct. really like the way you guys have said that, you know, experiencing it firsthand is as much as, as we'll, we'll do the, oh yeah, I've seen all the stuff about that. Experiencing it firsthand is a completely removed experience from viewing it through somebody else's video or looking at it online or anything. Yeah. It's just all not the same. You- 
all of your senses are firing on all cylinders when you're out there doing it yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about touching the pyramids. You've got the sounds, you've got the, the desert heat, you've got the, the sand swirling around, you've got the roughness of this stone that's been there for thousands of years. That does not come across on a video. Yeah. Just doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's another layer to that too, Grant. There's something, at least in my perspective, the work that it takes to get you there. And so mm -hmm. when you're traveling on a motorcycle, sometimes I remember for hundreds of miles being so excited to get to Patagonia. And I wanted to see the towers and Los Cuernos at Torres del Paine National Park. And it was probably actually something like three or 4,000 miles. And so that anticipation, that preparation, that work, every mile was just part of that process that really enriched the experience. Then when I got there that much more because I'd earned it. Oh, that's a yeah, really I good point. It, yeah. I think that all becomes part of the, the sensory experience that you had. Like you say, the, the touching, mm. the sound, the yes. noises you hear, the, the heat, the experience of getting there. It, it all becomes a package of what that spot, that time, that moment <clears throat> meant to you. I agree. Yeah, well, we've, we've experienced that, haven't we, Shirley? Going to Ushuaia, okay, rounding that corner and seeing the end of the world there or uh, Nordcap. Um, you know, that was hard going up to Nordcap. It would have been a lot easier in a four-wheel drive, but we did it on a motorcycle in wind and rain and sleet and snow. Um, Vladivostok is the same, you know. You just, it's that experience uh, when you do it is the important thing, I think. And I think Sam said it all. I was waiting for Sam to take a breath in, but he didn't. But you said it all, mate. You know, there's nothing else needs to be said. You know, I think, Michelle, you said another nail on the head there. Overland isn't just a long holiday, it's work. Um, but everything that we have to work for, and um, Brian, you just said this perfectly, is, is everything that you have to work for has just that extra layer of value. It really means something. Mm -hmm. And just mm -hmm. because we have so much um, possibility now doesn't mean that an overlander doesn't still have to work to make something happen. Um, so that, yeah, it's, it's another golden era of motorcycle travel is you still got to make the effort to make it happen. Some people may think that's slightly masochistic to think that way, that, that you have to go through sleet and rain and pain and suffering to really enjoy something. But if you think about it, and I just did when you were, when you were saying that, and when Brian was saying that, if you think about a game, when you play a game, isn't that sort of why we play games? Because it's difficult? You know, earning the points at the end is somehow rewarding because you went through an, a task to earn that? And and in a way, that's what you're saying. Do you follow me? Yeah. yeah there's no yeah. doubt that if something is easy, you don't appreciate it. Yeah. You know, think of your the, the classic rich kid getting handed a few million. Does he appreciate money? No. Well, I would appreciate well, I that, I have I, to admit. I, I, I would appreciate it, yes, but, but and we all started out broke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or poor. But if we'd started out with millions, we'd have a different attitude. Right. Michelle was talking about the roads that are that they're paving now. And um, I've heard people say and read on blogs that Route of 40 won't be the same now. It's paved. I don't know if it's all paved uh, in South America. But it could be paved. It could be perfect tarmac. It could be the most beautiful piece of road you've ever ridden, but it's still going to be so bloody windy, the wind could knock you off your motorcycle. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's so still plenty of challenges, aren't there? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Just because they're, they're you know, yeah, that's right. They're just different challenges. It could be actually worse on on smooth asphalt. I mean, at least the mud was sticking you to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could say the same thing about motorcycles. Again, back to Carl Stearns Clancy, the type of bike that he rode and the maintenance that it required to keep it going versus what we ride now and the maintenance that it takes to keep going. You know, it's night and day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about um, when Cheryl was talking about who had all done all these trips. Uh, Teresa Wallach, a sidecar on an old motorcycle in was it twenties or thirties? She went went through Africa, and sidecar and towing a trailer, because which she had no to place. have to to carry all the fuel and water she needed because exactly. uh, back then that's it right. wasn't available. And it wasn't a small trailer. You see a picture and you go, my goodness, that's the size of the whole motorcycle and sidecar rig that they're towing behind them. Yeah, and it's just Did staggering she- the amount of stuff she had to carry. Yeah. Did she have to carry tire pliers? Just asking for a free. It's pretty easy now, I think. It's, it's something to think about. It's it's a lot easier than it used to be. We we know we can find out information. We can look it up. Um, we can find out just about anything we could possibly want to know. So in a lot of ways, that makes it easier. But uh, somebody mentioned that, well, you can you can plan everything down to the last minute. Well, yeah, but we all know that all that planning is going to go out the window on the third day, don't we? Something's exactly. going to change. Something will go pear-shaped or an opportunity will pop up. Oh, Fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even the most um, sophisticated motorcycles with all the whiz-bang machine, uh, you know, machinery and technology still get flat tires. Yep. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, I was, for this, I was asking a friend, Tim Calhoun, who is an industry professional. He's a consultant now for the motorcycle industry for various companies. I was asking him, I was interested in, you know, motorcycle sales and how that might reflect the the trend for travel and, you know, wondering if if there was some sort of drop off with that. And we got talking about it. The one point that he'd made, he says, you know, about these people who, um, who tend to complain about things that they're not like, it, it, it's not like it used to be and things like that, traveling the way we do nowadays. But he was saying that if you think about it, all of the popularity that is, that has come over motorcycling and over adventure motorcycling since, you know, since it first became a thing has brought with it so many advancements, so many products that we wouldn't otherwise have. Like for instance, when you go to look for a helmet now, you have your choice of all kinds of adventure motorcycling helmets that that have cover all the little things that that were inconvenient before or that didn't quite work. And safety. There's the motorcycles are built with so many more safety features built in to try and make riding safer. There's so many things in there that advantages that the sort of we ride we ride on from the development of the industry and and its popularity and that means more people going out it means more places being discovered it means more places being uh, you know talked about and and featured wherever and demystified as i said earlier but in a way that's brought so many good things to us even allowing some places to become more accessible to us that we might otherwise never have known about so it's um it's interesting to look at it from that perspective as well yeah, if you look at it from the point of the gear you carry, I know our, the amount of stuff we would take on a similar trip today is probably somewhere around half to two-thirds of what we had to carry then, simply because gear is so much better, so much lighter, so much yeah. more compact, and yeah. better in so many ways. It's just staggering. Mm-hmm. Grant, it's funny that you say that because um, last week, 
Um, Birgit and I were doing some stuff up in the loft and oh, I was just sauna up there. We both lost weight. Excellent. Um, <laughs> and I found the tent poles from the first tent that I went down through Africa with. Wow. And these things are massive. They're fat, heavy poles. And I was thinking, jeepers, did I really carry that? And we sort of laid them on the ground uh, on the carpet next door to the tent poles that I use now. And the poles just half the size and mm -hmm. twice as strong. Yeah. Yep. Well, we were. I was looking at um, my tent and sleeping bag for a trip for us. Tent, sleeping bags, and pads. Our gear now is almost exactly half what we carried for around the world. Wow. Half. Yeah. Wow. That's a massive difference. And think of comfort. You know, like oh. waterproofing, Gore-Tex. I mean, there's so much with comfort: safety, boots, um, neck braces, airbags. I mean, there's just so many things. Yeah. Well, we went around the world in leathers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. So I mean, Leather would you suck? Would you do that now? <laughs> no, you know, of course not. No, because there's so many great products out there that you can wear in place of leathers that do the job so much better. Yeah, and the safety is so much better with your good armor, 3DO, and all that. The rest of it, yeah, it's a massive difference. Mm -hmm. I can fall off my dirt bike and go, yeah, so, <laughs> and I do regularly, so not a problem. <laughs> I think people should do everything they possibly can to get out and see this world, Bowers. It's amazing. You know, we get we get battered all of the time with negativity about this world. And I think the more people that they get out and see it, the more reality there is and the more respect there will be for it and the more inclined we're going to be to want to protect it. I think people should go out and ride and travel and explore and find the world for themselves if they possibly, possibly can. Um, and if they can't, then read lots of books. Hey. Oh, nice. Ah, yeah. Dad yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did warn you, you might want to edit this out, Jim. <laughs> no, shameless promotion. It's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> that almost went over my head. I just took a breath to say something and I just realized what you'd said. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, um, Traveling around the world for yourself, it's not going to be easy, but life rarely is. Um, there are going to be fantastic high points. And these high points will be very different to the high points that somebody had 50 years ago. Um, but those high points will be there and they'll be yours. Um, it might be work, but it sure as that isn't going to be boring. And times are changing, challenges are changing. We humans have this amazing ability to adapt and to find all the fun and awe that there is out there. And yeah, my skin's tingling as I'm talking about this. Um, travel, motorcycle travel, just fantastic. Let, let me uh, let me ask this: Is is um, imagine if the entire world were to travel? Everyone, everyone went and traveled, or, oh or, or pretty much everyone. Um, how would that change things for us? Even motorcycling. Let's say everybody's out motorcycle traveling. It's a terrifying thought. Why? <laughs> Everybody? Everybody. Oh, dear. You, there live, would be nobody in the restaurant to give you some food. Well, There'd be nobody in the market to buy groceries to, from. <laughs> they don't all have to go at the same time, but almost oh, like a rite okay. of passage, you know, that, that at, at some point, everybody's going to be going out and traveling the world. It's going to be an every person thing or almost every person. Well, it reminds me a little bit of growing up in Sturgis. And so when Sturgis Rally comes around, that's the time I get off the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So aside from the congestion things, but I mean, would it change, would it change the feeling of discovery, the importance of traveling? Is it completely motivated from within? 
is it completely satisfied from within or is there some allure to the fact that not everybody can do it? Of course, I there's think a little there bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's a bit of everything. I think um, uh, people have the desire to travel and see things like most of us or all of us do and others are so-so about it. No, um, we've met people in Ireland that, that hadn't travelled to more than 100 miles out of their village all their life. And, you know, others get terrified to travel on. I think it was Ted Simon that said the best time to go to a war zone is just after it finishes because no one wants to go there and it's great. People want to see you. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the human beings were different, aren't we? All of us. This is this, this amazing jigsaw puzzle of personalities, abilities, and talents and interests and all of the rest, the rest of it. Not everybody wants to go and travel. Um, and that's absolutely fine. But I think it's great that, the, that some people do um, because they can come back and they can share. Um, because, yeah, I know yeah. I've said this twice already, but this world of ours is just simply amazing. Yeah, but I think like your comment about um, they, that they can share, certainly not everybody's going to travel, but those that do get a new perspective on the world and can share that understanding that they've come to and help spread it among their friends and at least be a, I hesitate to use the word dissenting, but a different opinion of what the world is like out there. You know, if you've never been more than 100 miles from your house, you really haven't got a clue about the world and why people are the way they are and why they do these things and why all this stuff happens and what's going on. But somebody who's been there and seen it can at least offer them some insight. The other insight you get from that grant is that you learn very quickly that people are not their governments. No. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's that is true. so important. Playing devil's advocate, though, will that ever change anything? Does do travelers change anything when they come back and when they tell their friends? I mean, many times, you know, I mean, I think Shirley said it not too long ago, you know, the one thing you learn when you come back is people don't really want to hear that much about your trips. But I mean, I know that's slightly, slightly different, but I mean, do they change anything? Do travelers change things? Are they that proactive in changing people's attitudes and thoughts of foreign places? Hey, hang on, Jim. Hang on, Jim. We're 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 traveler travel influencers, and you wouldn't have a show. Oh, he's believing the titles now. Oh no! <laughs> so, you know, I was talking well to somebody done. today, and they said, "Oh, you 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 must be a travel influencer then." And I really, really do not like this title. I'm just an ordinary bloke that's been able to travel a lot, um, and I'm sharing the fun. That's make me gag. Yeah. 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 Back to the original comment. Yeah. What was it again? Well, Jim, probably not. No, no, no. Yeah, that's what I'm. I'm saying. Will they change the world? And and truly saying, probably not. I I don't think it changes the world in in a way like World War II changed the world. But I think in a small, subtle way. I mean, you may your friends may not want to listen to your stories or anything else, and you're probably not going to get into a real political or cultural discussion when you're telling the story of your trip. But when it does come to a political discussion or whatever, the average traveler is going to be more open and more willing to listen to both sides of a discussion and put in some insight that they have learned from other parts of the world and other people and other ways of thinking. And I think that has an influence. 
outside change the world? Maybe not, but it all adds up. And if nobody travels and nobody learns about other cultures and other ways of thinking, then we get more and more divided than we are today. And it's going to get worse. But is your perspective as a traveler really um, that comprehensive? You know, because... It doesn't have to be. No, but I'm saying like, let's say you go, well, like my, my example that I use a lot of times is, you know, when, especially when people are saying, you know, they go through a bad place and they say it's safe. So you go through a minefield, you make it through your perspective is, well, that wasn't so bad. It was a little scary, but nothing happened to me. I was fine. That's just one perspective. Or if you go to a country and you meet, um, let's say for instance, you stay in a, in a, in a place where there's a lot of money, there's, there's, um, uh, there's influential people that would be a different perspective than somebody who went and stayed in a impoverished area with the social problems. You know what I mean? And yet it's the same mm-hmm. country. So how much perspective are you actually bringing back when you, when you visit? Because you'll never really know. I think you said that earlier, Grant, you'll, you'll never really sure. know the country, but you'll know your experience there. Yeah. But what you do bring back is some perspective. You bring back a, what a, an idea, a perspective that is different than what you would have had if you hadn't been there at all. So at least you're bringing in new ideas, new ways of thinking, different attitudes, and that's a plus. It's the I'm right and you're wrong attitude that is the, is the biggest problem in the world today, I think. You know, it's, it's all different perspectives and different ways of looking at things. And we have to, I keep coming back to Franklin Covey's statement, we need to seek first to understand. And if we get some some understanding, it doesn't have to be all-encompassing, it doesn't have to be total, but understanding in some small way of different ways of thinking and understanding that other ways of thinking are okay. And we're all adults, we can all discuss, we can all um, think about different ways, and we can make reasonable discussions about different ways of thinking as opposed to what we know from our little village in, the, in wherever you are, which is completely uninformed. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a well-founded soapbox. And I think the thing that comes to mind for me is last year traveling by motorcycle in Pakistan and being from South Dakota, from the Midwest, I have a lot of family and friends who have spent the majority of their lives, if not in South Dakota, in just you know, kind of a five-state region around us. And many of my people in my life haven't traveled outside of the U.S. So for me to go outside of the U.S. and travel, say, to Mexico or to Europe is one thing, but to go to Pakistan is such a um, different culture in a different part of the world that they don't know anything about except what they see, you know, on TV or on the news. I had a lot of family and friends who were really uncomfortable and nervous and worried for me. And so while I don't want to be, you know, someone who, you know, preaches or lectures about what I'm seeing and try try to forcibly broaden some perspectives or open minds of the people that I know, I just try to share my experience as best I could. So with, you know, either stories in person or social media posts, I posted just, you know, a, a lovely little momentary interaction, maybe stopping at a gas station and having a father bring his son over who was two who wanted to sit on my motorcycle and take a picture with his son. I mean, that's an experience that we can all really to it no matter where you're from um and i think it's something that just really helps us all 
get the proper perspective that really as much as there are so many differences in the world, there are so many ways that we are alike and that we want to be safe. We want our, our family safe. We want to be healthy, have enough to eat, et cetera. So I, I work to share some of those stories and some of those experiences from my time in Pakistan. We, um, pulled up to a border gate at uh, one of the states within Pakistan and we were crossing and another motorcyclist that had been riding along the road with us, with our small group, there were nine of us women and a guide. He pulled over and invited us to his farm and threw an impromptu picnic and he picked fresh pomegranates and walnuts from the trees. His wife had made cheese at home and fresh baked bread. So we had tea by a stream on his farm and it was just this beautifully kind open experience that we would never have had. So while my friends and family, you know, can't experience that themselves, for me to be able to try and do justice and put it into words and share that with them. So they really, at least hopefully, maybe they don't feel the connection that I do to those people and to those experiences. At least they allow for the possibility that people in a country that they may hold some fear for um, now realize that maybe they're not as bad as they thought previously and that they're just like us. Exactly my point. Yep. Nicely said. How, yep. how wonderful was that? Brilliant. That's one of the key reasons I want to go traveling. That sort yes. of thing. That's exactly right. That's what keeps me with a bad case of wanderlust. Yeah. <laughs> Columbia used to be known uh, as a, a terrible, scary place to go and all kinds of drug problems. It's now losing that or has lost that, that reputation. Mm -hmm. Who did that? Travelers. <laughs> yeah. Are you saying that seriously, Michelle? <laughs> I, I am. And I remember specifically going to Columbia and I, so my grandmother is an ID4. She still lives here in South Dakota. And of course I traveled seven years ago. So when I was traveling, she was 86, 87 when I was in Columbia. And I remember intentionally, I used to call her once a month and check in and I skipped a month because I was going to be in Columbia and I knew she would be afraid of me being in Columbia because it still had that reputation. But it was even at that point, well dissolved and, and not earned as it had been back in the 80s in the days of cocaine, drug lords and all of whatever that was. But yeah, it definitely had a bad reputation. And my experience was nothing like that. And that was eight years ago. Because mm -hmm. that's what I was thinking. I, I hear this a lot from anyone who's been to Columbia that um, that is not like, you know, doesn't have that reputation. It makes me think that did travelers have a hand in this? Did tra travelers make a difference in the way the world views Colombia? I, I have no doubt. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of think it would be, and it might be at a grassroots level. I know there's the media attention, and you know all of that. I would say higher up stuff that is, that is more circulated on a business level. But on another level, there's a whole network of people are saying, Hey, Mexico's fine. Colombia's is fine. You know, um, maybe there's some bad spots or whatever, same as there are in, in many countries, but, and spreading the word that way. So in a way that, that does go back to what I was asking to, you know, do, can travelers change the world? Maybe it's possible. But also the world has changed. I mean, Colombia isn't the country it was 20 years ago because there aren't the drug lords there now. Yeah, no, and I totally agree with that. But what I mean is to get the word out, to get rid of that reputation. Is that something that happens naturally? Or do travelers have a hand in that? Do travelers have a hand by going there, visiting and saying, hey, that's not the experience that I had. Things have changed there. Certainly yeah, the travelers have a part in, in getting the word out, mm -hmm. most definitely. Every voice adds up. 
-hmm. The more travelers you have, the more newspaper stories, the more general stories you hear about it. And travelers passing through and telling that, saying that it was wonderful. Um, it all adds up and it gathers some momentum. And when I was there in 97, it was very dangerous and very bad. You know, it was very scary. But it's changed so much now, I'd, I'd go back in a heartbeat. And probably now, definitely now, more so than ever, because we can put this thing on blogs and make videos and, and do audio and do all kinds of things to tell people our experience and get an idea, a taste of what it might be to go there. Right. Well, I guess we'll leave it there, shall we? Sure. Why not? But what, what, a, what a lovely topic to talk about, the golden yes. age of travel. Mm. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, that. Yeah. And how fun would it be to think that we all were on the road during that golden age? That's yes. fun. And we're still going to be on the road. Yes. Yep. And those listening to us will have their own personal golden age. Yep. Yeah. 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 Everyone has their, their part in it. Yeah, that's so yep. true. Yeah. Well, um, moving into plugs, uh, Grant, what do you have? Well, Newfoundland, August 12 to 15, the first inaugural Horizons Unlimited Newfoundland Travelers Meeting is finally happening. We were planning it for 2020, and then we planned it for 2021, and now it's happening. So get onto the website, check it out, and if you can possibly get there, it's going to be awesome. It's fantastic, beautiful country, lots going on there, lots to see. And, of course, we also have Switzerland is coming up the following weekend, August 18, 21. We've got France coming in September. Um, Germany in October, South Africa, November 3. So lots happening for 2022, and we're already working on 2023 events. And the events we've had so far, the last one we just had, Can West, was huge, massively successful. We were very pleased, and everybody was just absolutely giddy with excitement. It was so much fun, so cool to be back and talking travel and seeing people that they hadn't seen in a long time. So try and get out to an event, even if it's not one of ours, get to an event, meet some people, and get, get excited about travel and getting out on your motorcycle again. And now, because Grant's forgetting at this point, the website is horizonsunlimited.com. And, oh, yeah. and if you're looking for events, it'll be forward slash events. <laughs> That's right. Well done, Jim. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you trained me well. <laughs> I have. Sam, what have you got? Oh, I've got lots. Um, I have got a really exciting time. Oh, I'm sorry, Sam. We're out of time now here for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> you are so excited. I can hear it in your voice. I can hear it in your breath. You're so excited about this. I can speak really quickly if you want me to. <laughs> no, no time no, at all. You just take your time. <laughs> all right. No, well, I've just got a fantastic couple of months just coming up. Um, so heading into the States in um, uh, the latter part of August, and um, I've got lots of lovely riding planned in front of me and I'm doing some presentations and shows as well. So if anybody's around in these areas, um, I'm starting off with Overland Expo Mountain in Loveland, Colorado on um, Friday the 26th to Sunday the 28th. And then I'm going to be at um, Whaling Wayne Weekend in Nelsonville, Ohio. Um, no, I won't be getting there until Friday, September 9th, um, but it does kick off on uh, Thursday the 8th, and that runs through until Sunday the 11th. Then I'm going to be at Motorcycles of Detroit on Wednesday, September 14th. 
um, the BMW Riders Association National Event at Waynesville, North Carolina. That's um, Thursday, September the 29th until Sunday, October 2nd. Then I'll be at um, Overland Expo East in Arrington, Virginia from Friday, October the 7th until Sunday the 9th. And I've got two more events that might be happening. I'm just waiting to tie those up. And I'll be posting on my website, website Facebook, Twitter and Instagram if they do come together. And if they don't, well, then I'm just going to have more time riding and I'm going to be off the fast roads and um, heading out into the back roads and meandering and smiling. There is one other thing that I would like to mention um, because this will come out perhaps just in time. Um, this month, I've been um, running a special offer on my second book, Under Asian Skies. It's been 80% off, and that will be running until the end of July. So um, if you're listening to this in time, nab it, because 80% off, that's pretty darn good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's normally £13.99, so that's around $20, $22. And um, so that's down to about £2.80, approximately $3.30 US. So um, absolute bargain. And I am getting asked a lot why I'm doing this. Actually, I'm losing some storage space. So instead of treating it as being a negative, I'm turning it to the advantage of anybody that's listening and fancies reading about um, the three years of uh, traveling from Australia up through Southeast Asia, India, Nepal, Pakistan, Iran, and through Eastern Europe. Um, what an incredible part of the world. So yeah, if this is out in time, then you're on a winner. If not, well, you missed that, but the book's still good. <laughs> Wow, that's fantastic. That's worth grabbing. You know, if you happen to have get the, if somebody's bought the audio version, that's worth grabbing anyway, just to, to get that hard copy. Um, very nice. That's a that's a good deal. Well, and it sounds exciting, Sam. You, by the way, you, you mentioned all those dates. Do you have a page on your website that just lists your 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 dates that you're going to be at different places? I do. It's uh, They're right up on the homepage on the left-hand side. And um, the website is sam-manicom.com. Dot com. There you go. Wow. Okay. So that's good. Thank you, Jim. Yes, you're welcome. And and you must be very excited to get over there and ride your F800 because that's got like, what is that, like eight times more horsepower than your R80? <laughs> <laughs> She certainly got longer legs than my R80 does. Yes. You have no problem with the stretches in between those places that you're going to, I'm sure. It's um, just, I am so looking forward to this. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sitting here with a huge grin. I wish we were doing this on video and then you'd see how big it was. Uh, that's great. Well, you can always snap a shot of it and we'll put it in the show notes. Nah, nah, never mind. Brian, <laughs> no, <don't> do that. <laughs> Brian what have you got? <laughs> um, I, uh, I wrote a really nice article on, uh, Royal Enfield's little Himalaya, uh, little 350s, I should say. And as a result of that, uh, my editor got a message that they were going to send someone over to the Himalayas to test out their new motorbikes. I'm thinking, you beauty, we're going to trip over to the Himalayas. Nah, he's the editor. He's taken the trip. Oh. So I get a trip. So I get a trip down to uh, Geelong, which is two hours from my place, uh, to Deakin University to have a look at um, the MotoCap uh, testing of motorcycle riding gear, um, which is in a laboratory surrounded by boffins who have created all this stuff, which is fantastic to see what they're doing for motorcycle safety. Uh, so I was really impressed. And they've got an online um, uh, um, presence that anyone anyone can get to look at, and it tests all the gear which is uh, on the market or what, what, what they can get hold of 
um, testing it against um, the European standards, which we use over here, which are the, supposedly the best in the world. And I, I thoroughly recommend people get online. It's all free. Just go and have a look at Motocap. If you're in the market for a new jacket, um, gloves, pants, riding pants, the differences between Kevlar and the testing that they do, stretching, um, uh, stitching, uh, it really opens your eyes as to what's available out there. And let me tell you, the most expensive stuff sometimes isn't the best. Yeah. So it's it's really quite interesting at the, what they're doing there and they're, they're um, actually developing machinery that um, uh, tests gloves and um, they're looking at all the statistics of where um, gloves are important when you uh, come into contact with the, the road and all the rest of it. So please get on board and have a look at um, motocap.com.au. That's M-O-T-O-C-A-P dot com dot A-U. Um, Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Heron down there and his his group um, are really dedicated to this. Uh, it's financed by our governments and um, um, other areas that uh, I, I think it's well worth it. It's very underutilised. Uh, Chris travels all over the world um, exploring different aspects of this and to my mind, they're world leaders in this space. So you know, don't um, little uh, their little backwater over here in Australia. They're doing some great work. So have a look. Motocap.com.au. Now, now we dealt with. Uh, I guess it was Chris there some time ago. Now we wanted to get them on the show. They, they didn't want to come on the show because they were they were concerned about the way yep. that um, that they, they do things because they want to stay totally neutral and and what yeah, topics we're right. doing. But the testing. It's the next best thing now, or it is the oh. next great thing, rather. It, it blows oh. away the other tests, and they do the burst test with the gloves, and and they don't have everything on there. I know because I get I get an email from them, you know, it seems yep. everybody does if you're on their mailing list, and it's interesting to see the new products that they're testing. But the but it's interesting if you're interested in a product to go there and see what it's rated because, like you said, money doesn't necessarily buy the safest product. So right. it's it's interesting what those tests show us. That's right. Uh, they had they had a machine. They, they took us into the laboratory and they have a machine there which uh, alters um, heat coming through the jacket, like uh, simulating body heat mm-hmm. and its effects on the in uh, on the materials and all the rest of it. And they have stress testing and impact testing, and they've now developed machines that they sit on the back of cars. So yeah, uh, I, I I thoroughly recommend them. Yeah. And if you think of the, like the Snell testing here in North America, the Snell testing is set up with a, a helmet drop onto an anvil. And there's a lot of people who think that the testing should be much more. And I know that Motocap is, is one of them that think that there's a lot more that should be done in, in helmet testing. And um, they go that yeah. extra mile with it. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, suggest people check that out. No, great suggestion, Brian. Shirley, what do you have? Um, nothing, Chief. Okay. That was quick. And the website for that is... Brian took up all my time. No. <laughs> uh, Michelle, how about you? I do, actually. It's a very simple but very uh, heartfelt one. It's a plug to our listeners. Um, I just wanted to say I had a couple of people. I've had two different groups of writers stop by in the last month. Steve and Kim from Ontario traveling, obviously, internationally if they were writing through South Dakota. And Sean from Australia. Uh, First of all, they passed along their thanks to all of you. So I wanted to make sure you heard that. 
but also um, just kind of talked about how they are passionate listeners of the show. And I, I just really want to say thank you to all of the people that take time to uh, listen to our rambling and ranting and funny stories and um, getting off topic and all of that. And yeah, what a fun bunch of people have in this community. So thanks for listening. No, that, that's great. Michelle, they said we get off topic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Michelle, I don't know about us all ranting and raving. Sam, maybe, but not the rest of us. <laughs> Sam, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think Sam. the ranting and raving was my, that's my words, by the way. <laughs> that's not necessarily anybody else's, but yes. Okay. Well, that is great. Thank you very much, everyone. I had a lot of fun. That, that was great. And, and uh, I really enjoyed it, in particular, the golden age of motorcycling, for sure. It's, it's fun to talk about that sort of thing and, uh, and look at all the different angles from that, that everyone has. So thank you very much. Another fun day. Thank you, Jim. Good job. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, two for two, right. Good fun. It's great chat with everybody. Yes, lots of fun. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get eBooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.